Morning, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to Calvary Chapel, Sydney. Such a blessing to share God's Word with you. We're in our study of Luke, starting in chapter 7, verse 18. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your Word and for your truth. We ask that you administer to our hearts and teach us your ways. Lord, you are so awesome, so perfect, and uh, we're so grateful to come before you in prayer, to be filled with your Spirit, to know your will, and we pray that you would speak to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever noticed that your eyes can play tricks on you? Something looks straight, but it's not. Um, that's why we rely upon instruments for measurements in building. One of the first things I learned in doing renovations is that you never assume that the floor is level. You don't ever assume that a wall is plumb, that it's perfectly vertical. And uh, many times, arguments over whether that wall was straight or that that fence was crooked, it was settled with the use of a spirit level or a straight line. Years ago, back in the States, I remember building a, a large, it was quite a project, a 34-meter-long retaining wall behind our house. And I learned that over time, the line would sag. And so you had to tie it really tight to keep it from sagging because every block that I placed, I wanted to justify it according to the line. I wanted to line it up and make sure that when the job was done, if you put a spirit level on any block, um, and this is the perfect world, right? If you put a spirit level on any block, you would see it's level, that it's solid, at least until the next earthquake anyway, being in San Diego. Um, but, you know, the margins on a page, they're justified, they're straight. And um, that's something that we're going to be talking about today, that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, he came justified according to the word. He lined up with exactly what the prophets said he would do. And uh, continuing our story, last week we spoke of Jesus healing the centurion and his, his servant that he had, uh, was beloved to him. And Jesus marveled over the great faith of this Gentile officer. Also, Jesus and his followers, they trekked all the way down to this obscure city of Nain where he interrupted a funeral procession and healed well, actually raised the dead son of the widow to life. People were amazed by the things Jesus did. They, reports of him went out throughout the nation. And they said, this is a great prophet that has come among us, and God has visited his people. I wonder, if you heard a report that the Messiah had come, what would you expect him to be doing? Where would you expect him to be? Who would you suspect should be around him? What kind of people would follow this Messiah? Jesus largely defied the expectations of people because they had in their mind what the Messiah would be and what he would do and the, the immediate change he would bring. But we'll see that Jesus did exactly what the Bible said, but it wasn't what people expected, and so they were stumbled and offended by that. So we're in Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 18, and follow along with me. Then the disciples of John reported to him concerning all these things. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to Jesus, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? When the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? The fame of Jesus reached the disciples of John, who reported to John. And Matthew eleven two says that at this time John was in prison. Uh, he had been arrested for telling Herod it was unlawful for him to be living in sin with his sister-in-law Herodias. And 
John sent these two disciples to ask Jesus this question, saying, are you the coming one or do we look for another? John had been sent by God to prepare the way of the Messiah. God had filled him with the Holy Spirit from the womb. He led this ascetic lifestyle away from the comforts of the world in solitude as he sought the Lord. And he was bold in his proclamation of the Messiah coming. And he spoke against sin. He, he told people of their need to repent. And God had sent him to baptize for the express purpose of revealing the Messiah to Israel. He said that when you baptize someone and they come up out of the water and a dove alights on them, then you'll know that that is the Messiah that I've sent. So John, he had baptized Jesus. Jesus came out of the water. The dove, the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove, alighted upon him. A voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And you would think that Jesus being thus identified, that it would carry John through seasons of difficulty and discouragement and imprisonment through every trial and confusion, that if you, hear, if you really heard the word of God, that it would sustain you. But we see here that John, even great prophets, are not immune to having expectations that are unmet. If you turn in your Bibles to Luke 3, verses 16 and 17, we'll see the way that John expected the Messiah to act according to Scripture. Totally biblical. This is, what he, this is how John described Jesus' ministry in Luke 3, 16. John answered, saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John spoke the truth. His focus, however, was more on the second coming of Christ. That's what he was figuring as mighty, the, the judgment of God being poured out upon unrighteous flesh. He expected Jesus to clean house, to overthrow the oppressive rule of Rome, to establish his kingdom and power. But the might that Jesus showed was not in a physical way, even though he did mighty miracles and signs, but it was through love and grace. It was a different approach than what he was thinking, like judgment and fire. Healing a Gentile centurion servant, uh, raising a widow's son from the dead. This was not in John's idea of what the Messiah would be doing. And it occurred to John that perhaps he was wrong. Maybe he had misinterpreted. And so he sought Christ for clarification. Like, where was the purging? Where's the gathering of the scattered? Where's the fiery judgment? In the Enduring Word Commentary, Morgan's quoted, he says, To all such restless impatience, he utters the same warning. For the most part, the way of the Lord's service is the way of plodding perseverance in the doing of apparently small things. The history of the church church shows that this is one of the lessons most difficult to learn. John expected the Messiah to immediately blaze forth in judgment, but Jesus, he preached repentance. He preached the kingdom of God. He walked in love and grace to all. He was long-suffering and compassionate and meek. He lived in a fishing village. He went to obscure places like Nain, and he taught in village synagogues. This is not high-profile stuff. And I think the tone of Psalm 94, 1 through 5, it fits John's attitude very well. It says, O Lord God, to whom vengeance belongs, O God, to whom vengeance belongs, shine forth, 
Rise up, O judge of the earth, render punishment to the proud. Lord, how long will the wicked, how long will the wicked triumph? They utter speech and speak insolent things. All the workers of iniquity boast in themselves. They break in pieces your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. That phrase, how long, O Lord, that's found so many times in the Psalms and the prophets, asked by people who were under affliction. And it's just like, Lord, why don't you do more? God, you should be, this is a serious situation and you ought to be doing something. There's no measurable progress, no light at the end of the tunnel. Can you identify with that feeling? That now is the time for drastic action. You have an idea of what God should do, but he doesn't seem to be doing it. Like, how, like I've suffered long enough. How long am I going to be out of work? How long will the normal rhythm of life be interrupted by this pandemic? How long until God does something? How long until I receive a message from that email I sent out a few weeks ago? Or how long until you do a healing work, Lord, until you restore this situation? And nothing seems to happen. Take heart, believer. God has not forgotten you. He knows what you're going through. He is long-suffering. He is patient and his purposes are good, that he's able to redeem everything for good to those who love God. He's not ignorant of your needs and pain. Jesus was not ignorant that John was in prison. In fact, it was when John went to prison that Jesus began to preach. The one who created the heavens and the earth, the one who calls the stars by name, he knows you and he's able to help you and to give you everything that you need even before you ask him. We are easily overwhelmed, but he never is. Praise God for that. Luke 7, 21. And that very hour he cured many of infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits. And to many blind he gave sight. Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things you have heard and seen and heard, that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. These disciples of John, they come to Jesus, they ask him a question. Jesus does not immediately answer them. Instead, it says that very hour he did all these miraculous signs. He doesn't give them a theological explanation, but a practical demonstration. And that's how Vince sold millions of sham wows with a two-minute commercial, or Phil Swift sold flex tape by the truckload. These seen-on-TV products, they can be cheesy, but they sell because we can see what a product can do for us. It's like we see what it can do, and we go, wow, I could use it like this, or maybe that would work for this problem. Jesus was not a pitch man. He was not selling a product. He did exactly what the the prophet said the Messiah would do. That same hour, Jesus is healing people of diseases. He's casting out demons. He's uh, healing people of plagues. He's making the blind to see. He's doing things that only God can do. And he says, you go tell John the things that you've, what you've seen and heard. Jesus fulfilled the words spoken by Isaiah, the same prophet that told us a Messiah would come. Jesus did exactly what the Messiah was supposed to be doing in Isaiah 35, 5 and 6. It says, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. The ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the dumb sing. For waters shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. This was written just after Isaiah was saying, 
people are going to see the glory and the excellency of God. And Jesus demonstrated it for everyone to see. And the things that he did, they lined up with Scripture. John 7, 31, it says, And many of the people believed in him and said, When the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these which this man has done? In the minds of believers, it's like there's never going to be someone more amazing and awesome than Jesus. What more could you possibly want in a Messiah? Like, he's saving people. He's healing people. He's delivering people. He's transforming lives. What more could you possibly want? He's raising the dead by just speaking to them. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus concludes by saying, it's like a little side note, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. And this word for offended from the Greek is the word that we render scandalized in English, which means to be defamed, and disgraced. It's kind of like when your parents or your siblings or uh, your kids have said something that you were embarrassed by. It ashamed you to some extent. You were scandalized like your kids said that or your dad did that. And uh, it reminds me a lot of when Joseph, he's second in command in Egypt, and his dad shows up, Israel. And Joseph is very well aware of the Egyptian culture by this stage, and he pulls his dad aside before this meeting with Pharaoh, and he says, okay, dad, now the Egyptians, they don't like shepherds, so he's coaching him. He says, when they ask you what you do for a living, say that you're a cattleman, that you, that you work with cattle, because the Egyptians hate shepherds. So they, he prepares this, he coaches his dad, gets him ready, goes before the Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says, what's your occupation? He says, I'm a shepherd. And I just imagine, it doesn't say so in scripture, but I can just see Joseph like groaning. It's like going, oh, like we went over this, dad. Come on. It was a little scandalous what was happening there. And uh, he didn't need to worry. He didn't need to be concerned. But there was a little bit of like, oh. And, and so Jesus is like, blessed is the man who's not scandalized because of me because of the people that are around me, because of the things that I'm doing and saying. That's not what you expect, and that's not what you would do. It's different than what you would do, but it's what God says I'm supposed to do. Matthew Henry said, Christ's education at Nazareth, his residence at Galilee, the meanness of his family and relations, his poverty, and the despicableness of his followers. I love that one. These and the like were stumbling blocks to many. Jesus is glad for the most undesirable people to follow him. The most despised, the ignorant, the hopeless, the wretched examples of humanity. And many thought poorly of Jesus because of the people that followed him. They thought he had subpar standards because of these unrighteous people that hung around him. And it wasn't that he's unrighteous, it's that he's gracious and he's patient. And his disciples were not even good enough to be considered Pharisee rejects. Like they weren't even on that level. And praise the Lord, there's room for all of us. So I ask you, are you offended because of Jesus? I expect very few would say, yes, Jesus, the things he did and said, they offend me or they scandalize me. But because Jesus is the head of the body, the church, of whom there are many members, every believer is one of those members, it's appropriate for me to ask, have you been offended because what a fellow member of the body has done or said to you recently or a long time ago? That's still in your mind. There's that offense that hasn't been dealt with. 
hasn't been forgiven. That Christian who shattered your expectation of how a pastor should be and treat people or how a believer, what a believer should look like, you were stumbled by that, you were offended, and, and then there was a schism, there was a division. Maybe you felt a pastor was arrogant or a brother or sister holds views you find embarrassing or there's some personalities that bother you. Now, when we're offended, it's usually connected with self because I feel shame because of this other person. It, it re- relates, it reflects badly upon me. Jesus didn't have that view of those sinners who followed him and called him Lord. This week in my devotions, I read Paul's exhortation to believers for the attitude they have towards one another in Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. He says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, this walking humbly, this long suffering, this bearing with or putting up with others, did he make this his aim out of the goodness of his heart? No, he was following the example of Jesus. This is how Jesus lived. It wasn't like, you tell them the truth, no matter what. Yes, we should speak the truth, but see that heart of lowliness, gentleness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Jesus kept doing this even when some people continued to follow John instead of him, even when John questioned if he was the Messiah or not, or if they should be looking for somebody else, or when people, he did these miracles, and they were still skeptical and unbelieving. Jesus kept loving them. Jesus kept reaching out to them. He kept listening to them. He kept helping them. He loved the unlovable. Led by the Holy Spirit, Jesus' grace and truth and wisdom personified for us, an example we should follow. He didn't need to repent, but we do, because we sin. Luke 7, 24. When the messengers of John had departed, he began to speak to the multitudes concerning John. What did you go out to the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who are gorgeously apparelled and live in luxury are in king's courts. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. This is he whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. After the messengers departed, Jesus addresses the multitudes that stood around, and he asked them, what did you go into the wilderness to see? John wasn't a flimsy reed bent by the breeze. He was a pillar, a pillar of truth, uh, one who was fearless in his proclamation. He didn't wear comfy clothes. He's wearing um, just the bare necessities, really. He, He had a simple diet of locusts and wild honey, and he denied those comforts to, so he could spend his time seeking the Lord so he could draw near to him. And he didn't care anything for celebrity. He was a son of a priest. He was filled with the Holy Spirit and sent by God to prepare the way for the Messiah. Jesus said, yes, he is a prophet. And not just any prophet, he is that notable prophet, the greatest of all the prophets, spoken of in Malachi 3.1, that says, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. 
And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. John the Baptist, he's the forerunner for the Messiah, who was the messenger of the covenant mentioned here, who came into the temple, who cleansed the temple. Jesus said there was no prophet greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And you think about that list of prophets and prophetesses in the Old Testament. I mean, you've got Moses, Samuel, Deborah, David, Elijah, Elisha. And theologians will group the different prophets, usually on the size of what they've written or contributed, but they're all equally important uh, to the word of God. It's not like there's some prophets more important than others, like, oh, he's a major prophet, so he, what he says carries more weight. No, they were all inspired by God to speak forth his word. John the Baptist is a unique case because he's an Old Testament prophet in the New Testament. He's under the law, and he remained under the law all his days because he was shortly after this beheaded by Herod. Because the task given to John was to personally herald the Son of God, and he would see him face to face, he was the greatest prophet. But Jesus said, he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And Spurgeon, he put it this way. He says, the least in the gospel stands on higher ground than the greatest under the law. Wouldn't you rejoice to have a call upon your life like John the Baptist? Like your job is to prepare the way of the Messiah who's going to come and save souls, who's going to save men, who's going to deliver Israel. We all love that, right? But you have a greater, more excellent calling upon you under the gospel than he did under law. Because Jesus, he's that messenger of a better covenant based upon better promises, some of you might not believe that. You're like, oh, come on, that's, that's ridiculous. But what is Jesus saying here? See, John, he did not enjoy the benefits of the new covenant because he died before he could enter into it. Jesus' blood had not been shed to atone for the sins of the world. The Holy Spirit had not been sent without measure. John proclaimed Christ before he personally received the benefits of of that new covenant that we have partaken of. So that's how it makes sense. The law of Moses was written on tablets of stone that could only condemn the letter of the law kills, but the Spirit brings life, a life that we have partaken in by being born again. Now please turn in your Bibles to Hebrews 8, starting in verse 7. Now the writer of Hebrews, he's going to quote here from Jeremiah 31. And we'll see that the second covenant that Jesus brought, ushered in is a better covenant and a greater covenant than the first. It says in Hebrews 8, 7, For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." 
None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. In that he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. The covenant of law was good. However, it revealed that people are wicked and sinners and degenerate. Jesus, he established a new covenant by grace through faith, not dependent on people's ability to keep the law. Because no person had ever kept the law perfectly until Christ. Righteousness had always been by faith. From the time of Abraham, even before law, right? So righteousness comes through faith. But the gospel, it promised spiritual regeneration and transformation from within. So after the death and resurrection by Jesus of Jesus, there were still sacrifices being offered in the temple. And that's why he says that the first is becoming obsolete. It was obsolete. It was outdated. And in 70 AD, all those sacrifices would end. Now, today's digital world has seen a lot of technology become obsolete. The word means to be worn out or to decay. Our computers, most of them don't even have floppy drives or even disk drives anymore because we can transfer that information via flash drives and in cloud storage and Bluetooth. It's like wires are rendered obsolete by Bluetooth and Wi-Fi. And it's important we understand just because the old covenant is obsolete does not mean that it's worthless. It's still the best way. It's the only way for someone to know they're a sinner and they have a need to be forgiven. So it's fine for you to take those old video games that only run on Windows 95 and those, you know, little floppy disks. You can bin those, recycle them or whatever. But the law, we're not to throw that out because that is... What brings conviction of sin, the Holy Spirit will use that to show a person their need for salvation and their need for forgiveness. But it's no longer the way that we relate to God because Jesus has come and he's brought in a new covenant that's better than the old. It's kind of like the relationship of the law and gospel is a bit like John the Baptist compared to Jesus. John the Baptist pointed the way to Christ, but Christ is the one that we're to follow because he's going to write his his laws upon our heart, and he's going to lead us by the Holy Spirit in that moment, not on tablet words written by the finger of God on tablets of stone, but by the Holy Spirit who indwells us and who enables us to do his will, who causes us to be spiritually fruitful. The law just brought death and condemnation, but Jesus brings life for eternity. The new covenant is on a completely different level, a new level, a better level. Luke 7, 29, and when all the people heard him, even the tax collectors justified God, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. The people who were willing to respond in obedience to the baptism of repentance offered by John, they agreed that what Jesus taught was wisdom from God. Even the tax collectors, it says, justified God. Those people that were defamed and infamous for their greed, they were now living lives that were different fundamentally because God had changed them. They had been born again. You know, the tax collectors before Christ, they had the law of Moses. Guess what? They were still greedy. It hadn't changed them. 
It didn't keep, the law didn't keep liars from lying and thieves from stealing. But repentance and trust in Christ, that changed people. Where they, these tax collectors were no longer sinning in those ways. Faith in Jesus miraculously changed them. The self-righteous Pharisees, those experts of the Mosaic law, they rejected God's will that they should repent and be born again through faith in Jesus. They refused to be baptized because they did not see their need to be baptized. They, did not need, they didn't see their need to repent because they were self-righteous. They were hardened to Christ. They were hardened to John, so they were also hardened to Christ. They went out to see John kind of like a restaurant critic goes out to uh, note the atmosphere and the service and grumbles over the limited wine menu, samples a little bit of food here and there, uh, orders the dessert just to see it, not because they really want to eat it, to include everything in a scathing review. But, but when people came to Jesus, these fishermen, these harlots, these tax collectors, they came hungry. And there's a huge difference between a starving person to know God and a critic doing his job, who's just going to go to another restaurant that they already have approved of. The irony is that even a tax collector saved by grace through faith can grow to be a critic of churches, of people, because knowledge puffs up. Love edifies. So if, we, if we're not coming to Jesus today hungry, don't be surprised if you're not fed. And if you're not willing to repent, you should not expect forgiveness. What is the will of God the Pharisees rejected? Well, we read of it in 2 Peter 3, 9, that God's long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Refusing to repent, they were without forgiveness, they were without salvation. Luke 7, 31, And the Lord said, To what then shall I liken the men of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, saying, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We mourned to you, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say, He has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look, a glutton and a winebibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by all her children." Jesus compared those who refused to respond to John or believe in Jesus like children sitting in the marketplace bickering over what game to play and not in agreement with each other. And this unbelieving generation is not uh, restricted to that time or to boomers or Gen X or Y or millennials uh, because really people can be impossible to please. Have you noticed that? You can ask for what you want, receive it, and still have a complaint still not be satisfied with what you have. Uh, John sa Jesus said, John was a serious guy. He denied the flesh. He didn't have a typical diet of even bread and wine. You said he was demon-possessed. I came eating bread and drinking wine, and you say that I'm a glutton and a drunk. John lived in a secluded wilderness. You criticized him for it, and you slander me because I eat with sinners. If Jesus didn't eat with sinners, I don't, he couldn't have eaten with anybody. The cliche goes, you can't please everyone all the time, but the Pharisees, they found fault with everything Jesus did. It's because Jesus wasn't the problem. They were, their mindset, their hearts were unrighteous. 
unwilling to yield. They were proud. And Jesus concludes in verse 35, but wisdom is justified by all her children. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. There were some that did not want to be found. They didn't think they were lost. But Jesus justified his claim as the Messiah God promised to send with the signs and miracles he did by the healing, by raising people from the dead that lined up with Scripture. So he was justified according to Scripture. The Pharisees judged a tax collector as a sinner because of his occupation, but Jesus knew when a tax collector or a Pharisee had repented of their sin. Jesus, remember, he walks up to Levi, a tax collector, while he's on the job and says, follow me. And it says that Levi left all, rose up, and followed Jesus, knowing that his loss of revenue was a small price to pay in exchange for being in the presence of God made flesh. So God, in his wisdom, he made a way for that tax collector to be saved, to be justified in faith in Christ apart from the law, that this person who the law condemned, now can be saved and born again into the family of God. To be justified is to render just or innocent a full pardon. If you turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 1, starting in verse 30, we'll see that in the previous bit, Paul had said that the preaching of the cross to those who perish is foolishness. But to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. That God's power, his might, was manifested through the gospel for people to have eternal life, to have that transformation within them. The Jews, they sought a sign. Jesus did a sign. They weren't satisfied. They wanted more signs. The Gentiles, they sought after wisdom. But the wisdom of God is foolish to those um, who are perishing. So for all who respond to Christ's call believing, Jesus is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And he goes on in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30, but of him you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Wisdom is justified by all her children. Jesus has made us adopted children of God. The gospel is fruitful to save lives, to do what the law could not do. Jesus does through this new covenant. Joshua was not born again because he served Moses, even as Gehazi was not born again because he served Elisha the prophet. Yet through Christ and the gospel, tax collectors were born again. Liars, thieves, and cheats like Zacchaeus, instead of being greedy, they started giving. Misers, they were suddenly generous, all for the glory of God. This testimony of a changed heart, it's a powerful one. It provides that evidence that Christ's life is in you, who is wisdom for us. It's not the will of God to obey the dead letter of the law, but to be born again through faith in Christ, knowing him, being changed by his presence forever. So the gospel brought results and fruitfulness that the law never could. The Pharisees, the legal experts, they found fault with John the Baptist and Jesus because of how they lived, because of the company they kept, how they washed their hands. I mean, come on. 
What they did not understand, though, was that the love of God, it fulfilled all the commands of the law, as it's written in Romans 13.10. It says, love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So God's love, it is that spirit level. It is that plumb line for all of our deeds and works to have. Christ's love, according to the scriptures, is to govern our attitude, whether we're dealing with a Pharisee or a tax collector. Praise God for the new covenant he's given us that is mighty, that Jesus, he pulled down those spiritual strongholds in a way that John the Baptist didn't expect, and he gives us new life through faith in him. And God desires your life to be a living demonstration of his love today, not as seen on TV, but as seen in Scripture and in Christ Jesus, all for the glory of God. Let's thank him. Thank you, Father, that you give us new life through Christ, that you've given us a new covenant that we can relate to apart from the dead works of the law, but through faith in Christ and spiritual regeneration by the Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that these words would sink into our hearts, that we'd realize we have such a great ministry, an excellent ministry, uh, even greater than John the Baptist, to proclaim Christ, to live for Christ, to allow the life of Jesus Christ to live through us. God, we pray that you would do a marvelous work in our lives for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless. Okay.